Hello, welcome to Forgotten Cello Music. This is episode 52. I'm your host, Aaron. This is installment number three of Counterpoint Imitation. It comes from Quarengi's Cello Method. On today's episode, a little review of Quarengi's bio, and just a reminder that this is a series of Counterpoint. In all, I will have five episodes. Then I will close dealing with Karengi with a capriccio. At least it's in the plans right now. That means that this episode is imitation, then canon, and finally a fugue. A very lengthy fugue. I'd like to give a thank you to Ben Hundley. He responded to my question in episode 37 when I asked the question, what is the name of the earliest known German cellist mentioned in this section? And I was dealing with German cello players in the beginnings of cello. So that was the very first section. I should say it's the second section dealing with the earliest known cello players or cellists. And he responded, Jean Zewald Trimer, question mark. And yes, that is correct. So Jean, the French version of Johann, or John, I guess you could say in English. And that is correct. In IMSLP, it is listed as Johann Zewald Trimer. So thank you for answering and thank you for putting the full name down. Anyway, you can respond to these questions. It's not limited to just one person. It's not like I have a limit on there, and in fact, it's not possible to put a limit on Q&As. So please visit uh, Spotify or Anchor to be able to answer those questions. And if you want to leave a voice message, you can do so at Anchor, and I'll have the links in the description. Well, let's begin by revisiting uh, the bio that is mentioned in the violoncello and its history. This is Guglielmo Quarenghi. He was born on October 22, 1826 in Castel Maggiore. He was pursuing his studies during the years 1839-1842. He arrived at maturity and was the first cellist at the Teatro della Scala at Milan. And from 1851, he gave instruction also at the Conservatoire to which he was indebted for his education. In February 1879, he took the place of Boucheron as choir master at the cathedral. He enjoyed this position only a few years, for he died February 3 or 4, 1882. Amongst his compositions, the most noteworthy are six capriccios, a chantalegiac with piano accompaniment, two romances, a scherzo, un pensiero al lago, and some fantasias on motifs from Italian operas. Now, you definitely did not hear the cello method mentioned in there, and that is correct. But both Baker's Dictionary of Musicians and Grove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians cite the cello method in their entries, which is a big bravo to them. Thank you for putting that in there, because I do think it is quite a significant piece of work. Well, what is imitation? Here is a direct translation from Quarenghi's cello method. 
the immediate repetition of a melody made elsewhere is called imitation. The part it proposes is called antecedent. The theme or subject in a canon or fugue, any theme or motive proposed for imitation. The one that answers is the consequent, the answer or second part after the antecedent. Imitations can be made in two or more parts. The consequence can be made to attack in unison with the second, third, etc., up to the octave, and they are obliged to imitate the rhythm of the antecedent as much as possible or desired. You may have noticed it's, it's a very basic, uh, broad understanding of imitation, and that's great. I'm glad he doesn't go into too much detail because it really can bog you down quickly, especially with such an enormous <laughs> cello method. Here we go with Baker's Dictionary of Musical Terms. I will give some credit to Groves at a later point, but first, Baker's, uh, because it is short and succinct, and I only give a, a little bit of that at, in, in any case, Groves is very lengthy and in-depth and gives many musical examples, which we will see later. Imitation from Baker's. In Latin, it's called imitatio. In Italian, imitazione. And in German, nachahmung. It is the repetition of a motive, phrase, or theme proposed by one part. That is the antecedent. In another part, the consequent, with or without modification. That is the bare-bones understanding of imitation. But here is how I would further develop what it says, just to clarify for us who don't deal with counterpoint on a daily basis or even have studied it for that matter. So I would say that the antecedent states the phrase first, and then it is followed by the consequent. So the consequent will repeat the antecedent, usually note for note and beat for beat for a measure or two, and then it will be altered. It will deviate. Now on to groves. Before I play or discuss Quarenghi's own composition of imitation found in the cello method, I'd like to let you hear two very short examples that are given in groves. They are the first two examples. And here is a couple of points about those two examples. Each one is in cut time. For simplification and counting, I think it's useful to think in 4-4. Four, four. So instead of counting 1 and 2 and you might count 1, 2, 3, 4. Um, for starters, I think that's a bit easier. The antecedent is not in the upper voice each time. So that brings us to a couple of questions that I that I had, actually three questions. Does the antecedent enter in the upper or lower voice in each of these examples? So example one, is it in the upper voice or in the lower voice? Example two, same. Uh, number two, by how many beats does each example displace the entry of the consequent? So do you count four beats between the first note of the antecedent and the first note of the consequent? Or eight beats or what have you? And number three, can you tell at what intervals the consequent enters 
for each example. All right, let's listen to those two examples right now. They're very short, and keep your ears tuned. to tell and you're interested please go to the Q&A that I will post you can see it on either Spotify or at Anchor I'll have the links to them so you can visit them again or if you're on Spotify now or if you're on uh, Apple Podcasts or what have you you can go visit those at this time okay here's a few further notes about imitation that are uh, of my own making. My understanding, just to clarify, my understanding of counterpoint is at the very best fundamental, or I should say basic. That's probably a better way to put it so that there's no confusion. I'm not an expert in counterpoint by any means, but I'm very interested in it. And uh, it, it comprises a, you know, a lot of music. Even in modern music, there's a lot of imitation. So I think it behooves us as musicians to understand it just a little bit better. Now, from my understanding, it is generally the case that the consequent will enter at a lower interval, although it's not necessary, and in the second or the lower voice. It can enter at an octave, a fifth, or any other interval. Imitation is also not strict in the sense that the consequent must follow the antecedent throughout the entire composition. If it did, in this case, we would have a canon, and that's for the next episode, so we're going to leave it there. Rather, the consequent will deviate in some fashion. We can have augmentation, diminution, inversion, free imitation, and several other uh, forms. Now on to Quarenghi's actual own composition of imitation. A few points, and I will have examples in between each of the points that I'm making. First of all, the antecedent makes the first statement in cello one, the upper part. Then in measure two, the consequent enters an octave lower. And then already by the second measure of the phrase, the consequent alters the notes, but not the rhythm, which follows similarly to the end of the phrase. And here's the example. Now, he restates half of the subject in measures 5 and 6, although the antecedent begins on beat 3 instead of beat 1, while the consequent enters on beat 1 halfway through the antecedent. And here it is. In the next statement, the antecedent is in cello 2, the lower voice, while the consequent is in cello 1. However, the consequent enters two measures after the antecedent and at a second lower. <laughs> There's also a twist here, because this is a different subject altogether, although it seems to have a few um, rhythmic elements from the first 
statement from the first subject, that is. Here it is. Are there any similarities between the first subject statement and this particular one here? Throughout the majority of the composition, Quarengi opts for what seems to me free imitation, but he reintroduces the original phrase, the subject, note for note, beat for beat, exactly as it appears two more times. And that brings us to a total of four times that you can hear this um, half note and two quarter notes being presented. It comes back once in the middle and again right before the end. And each time the antecedent is presented in violoncello one. Curiously, in the middle section of the statement, the consequent responds in kind with the phrase at the unison interval of the antecedent, and here is the example of that one. Well, that does it for the examples. Now, I'm going to play the entire composition of imitation. I hope you will listen to it with fresh ears.
And that's it. That is the conclusion of episode 52. This is the third installment in the series on Counterpoint. The next installment will be episode 53, and I will have a canon in store for you. Remember to play more forgotten cello music. Thank you.